0: From Chicago, welcome to 3Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: MMPDS are these, these material allowables for metals. It was the former Milham Book 5. And we need that because everything in aviation is empirical. It's all based on, on test data. And once you have those uh, test data, you can use that ma- the material allowables to create your, your design allowables, which have your margins of safety and, and those are your engineering calculations.
0: That was Bill Billman. Bill's the founder of Aerolitics. The company's focus is to improve market share and revenue for aerospace suppliers, from mills and forgers forager, to fabricators, assemblers, and distributors. Bill started his career in 1995 as an engineer with Raytheon Aircraft. More recently, Bill was a senior consultant with Aerostrategy. There, he spent four years working on the U.S. office and was actively involved in over 30 projects. He led multiple engagements and was responsible for two major intellectual property initiatives, including the aerospace raw materials model. Bill is a regular conference speaker and has spoken throughout North America, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Topics include raw materials, manufacturing, and supply chain. He holds a BS and MS in mechanical engineering and a PhD in industrial engineering from Purdue University, as well as an MBA and MPA from Cornell University. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Bill, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm excited for the conversation um i think there's going to be a lot of stuff that we can talk about um but like i do with all my guests i think the the place i always like to start is um kind of starting way at the beginning kind of where you're from where you grew up kind of what got you into the engineering kind of realm
1: well first and foremost mike thank you for the opportunity to uh to be here uh this is a first for me i haven't been on any any podcasts so um I hope I don't make too many too many blunders along the way. Uh, i'm I'm excited about this opportunity to talk a little bit about additive and and my background in particular. From Indiana, from Bloomington, um, kind of defied all odds and went to Purdue. It's you know Indiana University Territory and studied engineering. I've always had a passion for aviation and when I came here naively I thought I was going to uh, be an aerospace engineer and, and double major in, in aviation. That didn't happen. I ended up studying mechanical engineering and I did fly on the side and then uh, my first job stayed for my master's and and then went off to my first job which is a bit of a dream job at Beach Aircraft back in the, the early well mid-90s now. So it's been, it's been a few years and, and worked there for a number of years and Uh, it was wonderful. And then they, they sent me off to business school and it's kind of, and I was corrupted because you started talking about money. (laughs) So it's kind of a little different path, but I've, I've been passionate about aviation ever since.
0: And so was that, was that always the spark in terms of kind of when you were growing up kind of aviation kind of, um, airplanes and kind of push you to kind of engineering or did you like work through your hands and projects? What, what kind of got you started?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I guess I was like any other kid where I like to build things when I was younger. I loved models. I was always fascinated by aviation. I, I still am. I'm like a kid. I live now in Lafayette, Indiana, back back here at Purdue. I've moved around a few times, but I'll still run to the window and watch the planes come over because I'm on final for the Purdue airport. So it's uh it's just something that I've been captivated with. So I think that was the natural extension. I I don't know how much guidance you had when you went off to, to study uh, material science, correct? That's right. Um, But I went, I went to my high school counselor and talked about, uh, you know, different career options. And he said, well, you, you know, you're strong in math and science, you should consider engineering. So. That was kind of my introduction. I didn't see the natural fit and I didn't have anybody in my family or immediate family at least that was an engineer to be a model. Um, so it was a bit of an experiment when I when I came here, but um, it seemed to be a good fit. I, I don't work in my capacity now as an engineer and I haven't really since I went back to school in 2000, back to business school, but I use that uh, kind of that insight and that technical training uh, for decision-making in in um, many different aspects, probably like you as well. I, there could be some similarities here.
0: And what was the, I mean, you were at each aircraft, did that, and, and then kind of the MBA, but when did you start kind of getting in, interested or involved with the added manufacturing world?
1: Well, so um, this is kind of beer beer conversation, Mike. <laughs> so. Um, a bit of a circuitous path. Uh, so after business school, I studied public policy and then went down to South America to work. I wanted to take a little bit of a reprieve from from aviation, especially because living in Wichita, Kansas, there were kind of the ebb and flow of, of the market. so you could really feel the the um, differences, the, the fundamental changes. And I also wanted to do something that I felt I was giving a little bit more back to the community. So I spent some time, I wrote a thesis on trade and development, and spent some time in South America. I was in Uruguay and then came back to a sick mother. And this was back uh, mid 2007. And, And that was pivotal for many, many reasons on a personal, but also professional level, because that's when I got involved in management consulting. So I worked for a gentleman in Ann Arbor, Michigan uh, kevin michaels and kevin um, was kind of the consonant uh, management consultant and a lot of in, engineers turned mbas and we started working in materials and then not less manufacturing but materials and a, a bill of materials so you understand what materials are being consumed when you build an aircraft so that was kind of my first introduction or more of a, a, a closer look at materials and then uh, my mom got sick again in 2011. And that's when I decided to step away and, and do a few things on a personal level, take some more time with her. And then I started to get more involved in, in manufacturing because that was a natural extension for materials. And shortly thereafter, and I don't know exactly what the catalyst was, but I was introduced to additive. And it was probably around 2013, just hearing about the technology that you can print just about anything, you know, complexity is free. Uh, and I've been kind of studying it ever since.
0: That's awesome. And so what sort of work do you kind of do in, as it relates to additive? It sounds like kind of a lot of the the business, the materials kind of all mixed together. What? How would you describe
1: it? Yeah, well, so I started my consultancy in, in 2011 and the, the company is Aerolytics. And there's basically three uh, focuses uh one is the the material space the other is the manufacturing and the third is supply chain because if you understand the supply chain and that's really the execution of of the of the materials and the manufacturing so um that's those are the three areas that i focus on and it's it i ended up going back uh like you i went back for my phd but much much later in life i started down in texas tech and then transferred to purdue and kind of started all over again (laughs) to be honest I um, studied this time industrial engineering because I see it as the nexus between upstream, the design of aerospace, uh, mechanical and, and electrical engineering, for example, and then the downstream, which is the technology, the implementation, the technicians, and then way downstream, just business, just the money aspects. So that kind of overlap in the center I see is industrial engineering and, and the applied nature of how do you build it? You know, what's the feasibility? What's your return? How can you scale your operation? Uh, so I've been working on that uh, in industrial engineering capacity, and kind of a quasi capacity now uh, since I graduated last year. But even before that, so I kind of combined. I'm also interested in policy, so I kind of combined those those elements of trying to to use technology as the impetus uh, with with the business case that's supporting that, because everything comes back to kind of what's your what's your return on investment? How do you justify this type of investment? And then gauging risk, of course, and then policy supports that, especially for aerospace because we're so risk averse, and we really adhere to to uh, kind of a whole litany of of policy constraints and guidelines.
0: The additive industry is interesting in in that sense, where you can kind of do all of that in a new way, right? Because it's all it's like it's all developing as we go. Like there's new machines, new materials <laughs> that make new implications for companies to say, "Hey, does it make more sense to?" build stuff in the U S because this manufacturing method is already more expensive. We need higher skilled people in some cases to do it. And you have sustainability and design. So like, it seems like a, can I kid kid in the candy store? That's what I kind of feel like. It's like, there's so many different problems, whether it's technical problems, people problems, organization problems that, that can be addressed in the context of, of additive
1: yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's, you know, with opportunity, uh, there's there's challenge and vice versa. So I also support, and I think we've talked about this before, you're familiar with my work with SAE International. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because when I had an opportunity to support David Alexander, who's the head of all of aerospace standards for SAE. And, and the- so just so
0: everyone knows, SAE is a standards organization that stands for... Yeah.
1: Uh, well, well, it stands for Society of Automotive Engineers, but they, okay. they've, they've been in aerospace since the 30s. Actually, they released the first, it's called AMS, which is kind of the gold standard for materials in, in aerospace, aerospace materials specification. Their first AMS spec was back in 1939. It was obviously for aluminum. Uh, so they've been in that space of working predominantly with metals. Uh, since the 30s. And there, there was a group that was set up in, in 2015 by a tasking letter by the FAA to say, hey, we need some guidelines for the reasons that you just mentioned. There's there's so much green space here in additive. We need to, to put in place first, let's say, best practices and the next standards so we all have common language. And, and we're not the only, it's called SDO, Standards Developed Organization. SA is not the only SDO that works in this the space there's another of other engineering organizations uh, here in the U.S. as well as internationally that are trying to, to to coordinate these. And now the the goal and the challenge becomes to harmonize harmonize these, uh, because if there's there's conflicting standards, then that really creates issues. But to the point that you just made, um, it's it's almost uh, endless flexibility, <laughs> which which in aerospace is kind of overwhelming because. When I speak at, at these conferences, uh, people embrace additive because you can basically build anything. That's not entirely true. You and I know that, but let's say you can build a lot of things. The ship in the bottle because you're building things by, by layer and, and really the, the business case and the impetus in aviation is to lightweight an artifact an article, whether it's a, a gas turbine blade or, or you know, something in the aircraft, some, some structure. But what we don't know when we create that form, fit, and function, we have something that that looks like a, a useful artifact, but we don't necessarily know the integrity of that part. And so that's what those standards allow is to to, to help minimize the uncertainty in in building something, uh, because in many cases we're doing this for the first time because the parameter sets are so vast. So,
0: and where do you? I mean it's not just your decision, but I mean, you're kind of at the table for a lot of the SCA discussions. Like where do you even start? Like there's metals, there's polymers, there's different processes. Like what, how do you, how do you even think about starting that problem of standardization?
1: Well, I think that the first thing that you do is you convene uh, people who would be considered experts. We'll call them SME, subject matter experts. So you bring them into the room, and then you you decide based on consensus. And you probably know the the kind of the life cycle of a of a group where you've, you you probably heard it forming, storming, norming, and performing. So that's kind of what we've gone through. I wasn't part of the genesis back in in 2015. Uh, Dave Abbott from GE was Hector Sandoval uh, was he who at Lockheed Martin. Holly, you know Holly Dutchman. Uh, Dushman, quite well. She's now at Siemens, but those were some of the original parties at the table, and they've stayed the course and continue to be involved. But it's having that type of constructive dialogue. And I think that's the beauty of an effective organization, is to provide the, the catalyst to to move forward in a general and a general general direction. But what's interesting is The organization, and this is probably a sign of effective leadership, it delegates, right? And then you step back and and these empowered groups, now we're north of 550 members, 220 different organizations. uh, And it's global, global representation of not only companies, but also the supply chain in terms of the different types of, of companies that are involved, all dedicated to aerospace in this. And you start with a consensus and identify what the problems are. So the first framework that we developed, it's the 7,000 series called AMS 7,000. We have four specifications that we put together, and it happened to be for uh, Inconel. Let's just generically call it Inconel, if you would, 625, or some people call it Alloy 625. So we developed these specifications around that, and with that, you need to build a neurospace part, you need uh, first uh, a material that's you can you can count on, right? It's it's in, in the regulations it, it it adheres to 603, which is part of the you know the certification guidelines. 605 talks about a controlled process, and then 613 of the regulations, whether it's Part 23, Part 25, Part 27, uh, it talks about these test coupons because everything is empirically based for aviation. So you develop these test coupons, let's say you look at the tensile strength of these, uh, you, you consolidate these data, and then you provide uh, material design models that you use in the aircraft. So um, we started with, with metal because metal is, is kind of the, the ultimate objective, but we also work in polymers as well. And we work closely with the National Institute for Aviation Research and IR, and they have an organization called INCAMP, uh, the National Center for Advanced per- uh, Material Performance and they were working closely with Stratasys and the FAA to qualify the Fordham 900 and the Ultim 9085 project. So now we have a thermoplastic that we can use flame retardant, so it's used extensively for repairs in, in uh, the interior. So those were two of the, the the main projects and kind of with those frameworks, then we've developed other materials and commodities. Uh, but it's it's a challenge trying to to arrive at that consensus with regards to where, where even where to start to your point and where do we go next and that's one of the the uh, challenges that we're we're grappling with at the moment.
0: And over the time that you've been in the additive space, maybe specific to aerospace, like what if what have you seen kind of? change or or develop i mean you were at form next a couple of weeks ago and so like the technology's all, all always changing but like what are there any t- just general trends that you're seeing maybe from the adoption side the business side of of additive is it getting out to more suppliers or, or what are you really seeing
1: well, I think that the emphasis, and I can only speak from an aerospace perspective, the emphasis is still on metals uh, predominantly, not to say that, that plastics aren't important for polymers. Uh, in the polymer space, you've, we've got kind of a, a, it's not a newcomer now, but a newcomer in terms of the qualification process going through uh, the equivalent. Uh, so MMPDS are these, these material allowables for metals. It was the former Milham book five. And we need that because everything in aviation is empirical. It's all based on, on test data. And once you have those uh, test data, you can use that ma- the material allowables to create your, your design allowables, which have your margins of safety and, and those are your engineering calculations. So we do that both for metals as well as as nonmetals or polymers. The, the, the counterpart from MMPDS is CMH17. So we're working with those organizations Uh, We have somebody now sponsoring in the non-metals group through SAAMS, Mark Forge, and looking at continuous fiber. I think that's really exciting. Now, granted, you can't make particularly large parts, but now you can make structural parts because the carbon fiber is what carries the load in in these these polymer parts. Uh, So that's pretty fascinating. I don't know when I was at Formnext, if there are many competitors in that space, I think Mark Forge is pretty well positioned. Uh, but eventually there, there will be competition. And, and we talked about this earlier. You were informed next uh, back in 2019, the landscape changes quickly. And it's usually like um, maybe it's like the grocery store, right? The, all the, the fresh food is on the outside. And here it's the, those are the young companies. You know, you go around the perimeter and there are the, the smaller kiosks and pavilions. And uh, you see a lot of innovation there. Um, you know, the, the more established companies are usually front, front and center. So on the metal space, uh, the emphasis—it's still a crowded territory. I predict that there will be consolidation and and eventually uh, bankruptcy. But you've got six or seven companies uh, from the, you know, the best known EOS and and Renishaw, SLM, and and Concept Laser now part of GE Additive, but all the way down to companies that aren't as as well established like Trump, uh, a German laser company, and and um, even companies that were in metrology that are looking at this. And now I think one of the the paradigms, I don't know if it's it's a fundamental shift yet, but the direction we're heading are for low cost machines. So a typical machine for let's say a a laser powder bed fusion system is on the order of $400,000. There's uh, Exact Metal is a company relatively new out of uh, Pennsylvania that as a machine, that's that's under a hundred thousand. As a matter of fact, they just reduced the price to 65,000. So that can be really disruptive. Yeah. That's on the, the machine side. On the powder side, um, I think there's a lot of innovation and, and here you're the expert now um, in terms of the material scientists being able to experiment with smaller batches. I think that's the, the, the lure and to a certain extent with additive manufacturing, you don't need an entire heat of, of material to to pour your castings and then do experiments, you can do these on much smaller scales and and now start mixing these materials. So again, that same type of design flexibility is is offered in terms of materials development, especially when you couple that with analysis, ICME, Integrated Computational Materials Engineering, and look at trying to predict uh, performance based on chemistry and and so forth. That's fascinating. But in, in aerospace, there's really not a lot of innovation. We still look at the predominant commodities I think ASME is, or excuse me, uh, AMS is, is an excellent example of, of what we're targeting and why, but we're still looking at titanium, six 6.4 or 6.242 or triple five three, looking at stainless steels, 15.5, uh, 17.4, aluminum, super alloys, I mentioned Econel you know, uh, 6.25, but also 7.18, and, and waspoy Haspoi, and so forth. So th- that's where the focus has been, even though there is an innovation I would argue outside of aerospace for, for, uh, metals, uh, metallurgy t- and not just powders. We look at wire too, but you know, 95% of our specifications are written for powder, which is a much more volatile material, as you know.
0: Right. Right. And so shifting gears a little bit, I always like to ask, uh, folks, I mean, even similar, you're kind of on a similar path as, as me in terms of kind of the consulting path so what is it like kind of giving people one of the the goals of this podcast is to kind of give give a glimpse into a day in the life of uh (laughs) folks that are working in the the additive space and and so kind of from your perspective what do you like about kind of your job and kind of what you do and kind of can you give kind of a general description of kind of the the day-to-day details of of running your business
1: well that's a great question um how about if we just start with, do I like what I do? Um, sure. and the answer is yes. Do I like it every day of the week? Clearly no. I mean, who does, but uh, the things I like about my job, I'm very independent. So I like the flexibility. There's, there's a, it's a bit of a crass notion, but there's this whole idea when you run your own company, you eat what you kill. I don't know if you've heard that, yeah. that, um, uh, kind of, uh, that phrase before, but there's some truth to that. And for the right personality, it's, it's uh, liberating because you, you feel this great sense of when you win a, a major project. Uh, but I would say that being an entrepreneur, I've actually had this debate recently with a colleague who says entrepreneurs are extremely risk adverse. I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> I think it depends on how, how risk seeking. But in general, I think the average entrepreneur leans into to something and it really, I think that's what uh, it begins with. It starts with your appetite for risk and, um, and, and dealing with uncertainty, right? Which is uh, synonymous. But I think financially, if, if you're in a position where you have some flexibility, because I think that could be the ultimate constraint, or if you have, I, I don't have any dependents. So if you have a family where you can't necessarily go a couple months without a paycheck for, for whatever reasons... Then I think it could be a very very difficult road. But what I like is um, again the flexibility and the opportunity to travel. I like meeting new people. I like, um, I guess, atypical of, of of an engineer. I've got a relatively short attention span. I like I like a dynamic environment and I like change. I've moved a lot in my life lifetime and uh, I like that. I like that aspect of management consulting. That there's the project durations are short they're in the matter of months. Uh, the downside is that you don't necessarily get closure when you so you work on an engagement and our final products are, are reports. We call them decks. So we provide the deck to the client. And those are a series of recommendations. It's, it's not as, as structured, let's say, as a scientific uh, analysis and, and definition of the problem statement. But there's a methodical uh, walkthrough of identifying the problem and then a framework to, to solve the problem and answer the client's question for questions. Um, and sometimes it's, it's uh, anticlimactic because you don't necessarily know after you make these recommendations. <laughs> number one, if they did it, number two, if they did it well and it's, it was successful. So, so, from that standpoint, I enjoyed the project engineering when I was back at Raytheon Aircraft towards the end of my, my uh, tenure there. Uh, you could walk the, the floor and see aircraft and, you know, the, the, the whole idea of kick the tires, you could actually, there was a tangible product. So offering a service is, is a bit different. And I think you're somewhere in, in the middle because you, you work in this in the software industry. So it's, you have a tangible product, but it's not necessarily making something like a Tesla, Tesla automobile.
0: So kind of last question of, of the day, um, what's, what are you looking forward to in twenty? 20- 2022 I have to think for, for a second there, but, um, I mean, from a new technology standpoint or from the work you're doing, your projects, yeah. is there anything that's kind of exciting, um, from your perspective?
1: Uh, well on a personal level, there could be a, a, a major change. Um, and that's probably, I, I don't know if I want to make that public yet until I, and I really know for sure if that's going to happen. So that's, that's kind of, um, it's, it's it's exciting as it is daunting, um, but, you know, kind of looking to, to, to make a few changes. After coming back to school, I moved back to, to uh, Lafayette, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And um, so I'm, I'm maybe looking to make a change there. In terms of the, the technology, I don't know if there's any anything that's kind of on the precipice of, of materializing. I think that working with standards is interesting because originally I was uh, a bit remiss to get involved because it seemed like it's glacial. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's too slow moving. Well, the average standard takes a couple of years to release because it's heavily vetted and, and you have multiple perspectives and, and, but the, by the time it's out and, and the, the art of writing a standard is sufficiently vague, it's, it's, it's Goldilocks, right? It's that, not too hot, not too too cold. So really trying to right-size that so it's effective, it provides enough prescription to give guidance uh, versus um, being overly prescribed such that it drives cost up unnecessarily and, and uh, requirements that just don't add value to, to the final product. So uh, from an SAE standpoint, we're looking at trying to take these standards now, we have over 25 that have been released and another 35 in development, and now, trying to implement these to help the industrialization process. And so, we're going through in uh, some strategic planning where we're looking at moving beyond material and process, that controlled process that we talked about earlier, and looking at uh, trying to enable the supply chain a little bit more. But, you know, of all industries, aerospace got hit pretty hard, probably not as hard as the restaurant industry uh, and, and travel and tourism, but in general, uh, many of the OEMs have had a really, really rough uh, year this past year, year and a half. And so I think that uh, there's there's glimmers of, of hope and light. I think nobody really knows. Nobody, of course, has that crystal ball to see if the economy is really going to pull up and pick up. And, and we're going to go back to to life as normal. It'll probably be another year, I think, before that really happens for aerospace. Um And I think beyond additive, uh, I also work with thermoplastics and thermal sets and and there's a lot of energy in that space and that's kind of adjacent to our conversation at hand, but advanced air mobility, uh, they're spending billions and actually hundreds of billions of dollars globally in this market. There's a role for 3D printed parts, but right now using kind of the analogy of crawl, walk, run, we're still in that crawl space because we're, we're trying to figure out uh, the configurations of these aircraft. Joby's a, a popular example, but there's a Lilium from from Germany, there's Archer here in the United States, and a litany of others. There's over 250 different OEMs, but this is pretty exciting because they have all these different designs and they're all electric aircraft. But the business model hasn't been proved out because it's just a market that's that's waiting to to develop. So I think. That, that would be exciting from an aerospace, just an aerospace at large uh, standpoint. And again, there's definitely a role for 3D printed parts. I, I had some conversations last week at Formnext with various uh, machine builders that have printed parts for some of these companies. And part of that is using for, uh, being used for prototyping. But as you know, that's the real challenge for us, our industry is to move beyond just prototyping and into into production, and in particular, serialized production, and, and that comes back to the design flexibility and and designing for additive and making complex parts that you couldn't necessarily machine, for example. So, um, yeah. So I, I that's I, I guess what I would say for this this next year, you know, AM I I don't know if there's going to be any any major major changes. I think it's it's exciting to see it as the TRL continues to increase and, and the technology matures. Um, it's still a bit of the Wild West, <laughs> I you, you know, at least from an aerospace standpoint, but people in other industries probably think it's not moving fast enough.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you for your time, sharing your perspective and uh, look forward to seeing you in, in in the coming weeks and trade shows and in the new year for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Really was a pleasure. And I and, uh, compliment you for doing what you're doing to, to put the word out there and um, to help promote this technology, especially for young, aspiring engineers. It's, and there's, there's a bit of a, a, um, a renaissance of sorts here in the United States for manufacturing. We need that. That's really at the, the, the basis and the heart of a strong economy. So thanks for, uh, thanks for helping to promote this technology.